everybody. It is so good to be here again with you at Mueller. Uh, it's amazing the people you meet in church. Uh, Effie and Elias, who are, are visiting here this morning from Greece, uh, we met over in Adelaide. They spoke in my church over in Adelaide. They're doing a great work in Greece among the street people. They give out uh, food and they help people get off drugs. It's just an amazing, amazing ministry. So good to see you again this morning. Such an, a, a pleasant surprise to, to see your smiling faces here. Um, so this morning, we're getting into the book of Jude. You know, it was a church that had a good reputation in the community. It fed the poor. It had programs for the whole family. The pastor was a dynamic, charismatic speaker who spoke to the issues of the day, which is why it was such a shock when in 1978, the news rang out all over the world that the whole church, more than 900 people and their children, were found dead in the church's compound. Now, of course, I'm speaking of the Jonestown Massacre. If you were alive then in 1978, you would know that Jim Jones had led the People's Church, the church that he pastored, to all drink this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and commit suicide. Now, when you think about Jonestown, I don't know about for you, but for me, it's a tragedy, but I think to myself, man, how could these people be so gullible? I mean, couldn't they see what Jim Jones was selling them? I mean, how do you get to the point where you're willing to give your own children, your own children, um, a cyanide-laced drink? Well, this is the power of spiritual deception. And this is why we all have to remain spiritually vigilant. Because when Jim Jones started out, he was a Methodist preacher. He didn't show up as a false teacher You know, Jesus said that this is always how it is. He says, there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. And nowadays, we have to be especially vigilant because we live in what some are calling the post-truth era. You see, it was hoped when the internet was created over 25 years ago now, that with the internet and with unparalleled access to information, the world would be united. Ignorance would fade away and the world would be a a united, a better place. But in fact, the opposite has happened. The opposite has happened. We're a more divided world than ever before. Politically, you have the hard left and the hard right and the center has sort of disappeared. Reason has disappeared. And even like the rage culture now, when when you go on the internet, you'll find that, you know, people in order to get clicks, in order to get people to like their stuff, they'll put the most outrageous thing in the tagline, leading to this rage culture where people are enraged at others for for, for following various different, uh, you know, things. And this sort of rage culture has come into the church. You know, in my journeys around, I find churches are being divided because people are following their teacher, their YouTube person or their particular person that they follow on the internet and they look down their nose at others who don't follow them. And so I am concerned. I am literally concerned for the church because while we might look down our noses at the people of Jonestown and wonder how the heck they could do that, we will consume things on our iPhones without a second thought, without a second thought. 
Well, this concern for the church and for the need to discernment was also shared by Jesus' little brother. If you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, but open them up. You want to follow along, follow along in your Bible, get your iPhone out, open it up to the book of Jude. You see, Jude was Jesus' younger brother. And according to Mark 6, verse 3, Jesus had four brothers. James, who was a leader in the early church, who wrote the letter that we know in our New Testament called James. Joes. Jude, or Judah, as his name is in Greek and Hebrew, who is the author of this book, and Simon. Now, this little book, which is the second last book in the Bible, is rarely studied. And that may be because it's very, very short, it's only one chapter long, but it also is probably because of its contents. You know, this, this little book contains some pretty interesting things. It talks about these angels leaving their proper abode. Who's that? I'm not going to be able to dig into that today. You're going to have to invite me back some other time to explain that. Or, like, it talks about this dispute that Michael the archangel had with the devil over the body of Jesus. Very interesting things. And Jude also quotes for some very interesting sources. He quotes from the book of Enoch, this extra-biblical source that was written in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament but was never considered to be inspired, never considered to be part of the canon of Scripture. And Jude does not bring us a real feel-good message. If you want a feel-good message, read the book of Philippians. Jude, in fact, he says to us, he says to us in verse 3, he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to bring you a feel-good message. But because of the situation that you are facing, he says, I felt compelled to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. Now notice that this contending is not just given to a select, select individuals, but it's given to the entire church. You know, I am actually very grateful for apologetic ministries, for people who seek to equip the church to defend the faith, but it is not the responsibility of just certain apologists or Bible teachers to contend for the faith. If we want to become a discerning people, Jude says, then the whole church needs to contend for the faith delivered once for all. So how does a church contend for the faith? How does a church in this post-truth era contend against spiritual deception? And how do we as a church in the process not become a church filled with heresy hunters seeking to point out the errors of every single person. Well, the first thing that Jude tells us in his letter is that if we want to remain vigilant and contend earnestly for the faith, then you must know what you believe. If you want to contend earnestly for the faith, then every single one of us need to know the essentials of the Christian faith. Notice again in verse 3 that Jude says that we must contend for the faith, and then he describes it as the faith that has been delivered once for all. You see, there is a body of truth that is true no matter what cultural context you find yourself in. The Christian faith is built on truth claims. Now, I know that it's popular nowadays in our postmodern world to say, what is true for you? is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. You know, how do we know that anything is true? In the early 2000s, there was a movement in Christianity called the Emergent Church. 
not to be confused with the emerging church, they were slightly related, but the emergent church movement had certain teachers and authors, and they were starting to question, they began as evangelicals, but they started to question the essential teaching of the Christian faith. For example, Rob Bell was one of those, and in his book, The Velvet Jesus, he questioned whether Christians had to believe in the virgin birth. And now, you know, many young people following these emergent church leaders, they deconstructed their faith, and they're nowhere today. You know, for me personally, there was a friend of mine who was a close friend growing up. He got really switched on for Jesus. He decided to go to Bible college to get trained because he wanted to serve Jesus. But at the Bible college that he was attending, there was this professor who was greatly influenced by these emergent church writers. And this Bible college professor and his teaching shipwrecked my friend's faith. And he's nowhere today. But you might say, yes, Timon, I get it. We need to contend for this body of truth that was handed down once for all. But if there is this body of truth that's handed down once for all, then why are there so many different denominations? I mean, you have the Baptists, the Churches of Christ, the Assemblies of God, and, you know, even you, Timon, you represent the Christian community churches. And all of these different denominations, they tend to believe that what they teach is what the Bible teaches. So how can you say with all of these different denominations out there that there is one faith that was handed down once for all? Well, this is where we need to understand the difference between what the church has called dogma, the essential teachings of the Christian faith, and doctrine, the teachings of a particular church or denomination. You see, the church has always held that there are certain dogmas, meaning that there are certain essentials to the Christian gospel, things like the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible, the triunity of God, the virgin birth, the full deity and humanity of Christ, the fallenness of humanity, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, his bodily resurrection and his physical return to church, to, to, to the world. And the church has always said that these things are essential. They are dogma. And if you teach in line with these things, then you are orthodox. But if you don't, then you're teaching heresy. And these things are actually clearly taught in the Bible. If you were to open up the Bible and start reading it, you would find these things taught clearly in the Bible. But there are other things which are church doctrines. These are secondary issues which different churches and denominations might differ upon. Now, that doesn't make them unimportant. It just means that they don't hold the same weight as those in the first category. For example, Mueller Church here... You believe in church government by a plurality of elders. The Baptist churches, on the other hand, they believe in congregational government. So that's a difference. Now, this doesn't mean that the Baptist churches are a bunch of heretics, <laughs> or from the Baptist perspective that you guys are a cult here on the peninsula. It just means that you have a difference in this secondary issue of church governance. Now, don't think for a moment that I'm suggesting that these issues are unimportant. Issues like church governance are taught in the Bible, and they do affect the way that you operate as a church. And every church that believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is authoritative should seek to be as biblically faithful as possible. It just means that these issues are not first-order issues. 
And so to contend for the faith handed down once for all, I think it means to stand solidly on those essential Christian teachings and then to pursue biblically, biblical faithfulness while humbly realizing that there will be differences among evangelical Christians. But the question for you this morning is this, is do you know the essentials? Do you know the essentials? Do you know what you believe? Are you able to articulate essential Christian doctrine? You know, I was worried about this when I was a pastor because I'd been preaching at my church for about five years and I was worried about my church. And, and so you know what I did? I gave them a bit of a quiz. I gave them a quiz to see if they knew the essentials of the Christian faith. If they could pick out the truth of the Trinity from the era of modalism. And I was shocked. I was shocked to find that people can come week after week to church and yet not know the essentials. People can have a feeling faith, but not a thinking faith. But if we want to contend for the faith in a post-truth world, then we need to know what we believe. Know what you believe. But secondly, if we are going to contend for the faith, not only must we know what we believe, but we must learn to develop our discernment muscles. You know, if you don't use your muscles, you're going to atrophy. And so we need to actually exercise our discernment muscles and learn to grow our discernment muscles. You know, Christians, unfortunately, can be so gullible. They'll believe anything that they read on the internet or that they see on TikTok. Now, the Christians that Jude wrote to were the same. Look down in verse 4. Jude says, For certain people have crept in, notice this, unnoticed, <laughs> who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Jude is saying, you guys have not developed discernment. You've just allowed these false teachers to creep in. In fact, in verse 12, he says that they are hidden reefs at your love feasts, just as reefs are submerged under the water and will rip out the hull of a boat. These false teachers are in your church. So how do you develop your discernment muscles to recognize false teachers? Well, I want to give you three Bs this morning. Are you ready? Three Bs. Who's ready? Oh, good. Someone up the back says ready. Are you ready for the three Bs to be on the lookout for? Here's the first B. The first B is beliefs. Look out for beliefs. Notice in verse 4, Jude says that they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, typically there are two beliefs, areas of beliefs that false teachers pervert. The grace of God and the identity of Jesus. False teachers will either teach legalism, that in order to be accepted by God, you have to follow the law, or they will teach license, that since you are accepted by God, you don't have to worry about obedience. But both legalism and license are not what the Bible teaches about grace. What the Bible teaches is that the grace of God that forgives you of your sin is also the grace of God that frees you from your sin so that you become a person of increasing obedience to God. But they also deny that Jesus is the only way to God. Every major cult has a different view on the person and work of Jesus. 
whether that be the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was just a created being, or the Mormons who believe that he and Satan were brothers, or the Muslims who believe that Jesus was just a prophet. So you can always identify a false teacher by their beliefs, how they view grace, and how they view Jesus. But not only should we look out for beliefs, here's the second B, we need to be on the lookout for their behavior. Jesus himself said, you will know them by their fruits, by their behavior. Now Jude gives us three Old Testament examples in verses 5 to 7, and then he gives us three more in verse 11 to describe the two characteristics of the behavior of these false teachers. In verses 5 to 7, he talks about the Israelites who disobeyed God in the wilderness, and he talks about these angels who left their proper abode, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, who were destroyed by eternal fire. Now, I don't have enough time today to unpack those, but what is common with all of these three examples is sexual immorality. You know, one of the chief characteristics of the behavior of false teachers is sexual immorality. You can always spot a false teacher because they will be moving away from biblical morality. You see, just as the essentials of the Christian faith are very clear in the Bible, so God is also very clear on his moral law. You have the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, and each one of these commandments are repeated in the New, bar, I believe, the Sabbath commandment. But in verse 11, Jude also gives three more examples from the Old Testament. He says, they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. What is common in all of these Old Testament examples is greed. Cain, Balaam, and Korah were greedy for things that God had not given them. So sexual immorality and greed are the two things that you should look for in the behavior of false teachers. False teachers will pervert biblical morality and they'll just be in it for their own gain. But finally, not only should we look at what they believe and how they behave, but here's the third B, and we don't use this very often, but if you want to develop your discernment, muscles, you need to wonder whether they blaspheme. (laughs) Now, that's an old word, but blaspheme means to speak irreverently or show disrespect to sacred things. And twice in verses 8 to 10, Jude says that these false teachers blaspheme. They don't show reverence to God or to his word or to spiritual reality. Notice, look in verse 8, this is very significant. It says that they rely on dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority. You see, rather than submitting to the truth of God's word, what false teachers do is they place their subjective experience above the authority of God's word. You know, this past week, I was listening to this interview uh, with a a quote-unquote or a so-called gay pastor. And when he was asked this question, what he made of the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, he said that the Holy Spirit had told him that those passages were not from God, but from man. Therefore, he did not have to obey them. But this is what false teachers do. They have no reverence for God's word. 
They place their subjective experience above the authority of the Bible. But they also have no reverence for spiritual reality. In verse 9, Jude speaks of an apparent dispute that the archangel Michael had with the devil over the body of Moses. Apparently, when Moses died, the Lord sent the archangel Michael to bury his body, but the the devil wouldn't allow him. Um, But Michael was, such was his respect, healthy respect for the devil, that he did not say, I rebuke you, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, I get very uneasy when I hear Christians rebuking the devil or talking about the devil so casually, joking about him. Because not even Michael, the archangel, would do it. He said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And so these three Bs can help us develop our discernment muscles. You know, we need to be on the lookout for their beliefs, how they view grace and how they view Jesus. We need to look out for their behavior. Are they moving away from biblical morality and just in ministry for their own gain? And do they blaspheme? Do they treat God, his word, and spiritual reality without the reverence that it deserves? You know, I'm worried that we have lost a sense of reverence and awe of God when it comes to our churches. We've lost a sense of his awesome power and exalted holiness. We often treat him so casually. We often treat the Bible so casually. <laughs> you know, revival, either in a church or in a person's heart, always begins, I believe, with a new appreciation of the holiness of God. Do you remember Isaiah 6? Remember Isaiah 6? It was the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah, it says, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the angels, the seraphim, surrounded the throne. And what did they say? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Corporate revival and personal renewal begins when people get a sense of the awesomeness of God. You know, I wonder this morning if maybe you can see that progression in your life this morning. Maybe it started with your beliefs. You've started to pervert the grace of God and think that God doesn't really care about my sin. And that's led to a bit of a laxness in your moral behavior. And now in your life, You're not giving God the reverence and the place that he deserves in your life personally. See, get this. Get this. I want to share this with you right now. It's not in my manuscript, but I was thinking about this as we were in worship. What the heart desires, the mind justifies. And people who wander away from God, it's because they've wandered morally. They've wandered from him. They've wandered from him morally, and then their mind starts justifying their behavior with all sorts of beliefs. So how do we contend for the faith? Know what you believe. Develop your discernment muscles. But thirdly, Jude teaches us, that we must pursue spiritual growth. 
You see, Jude tells us that we should expect spiritual deception and deceivers to come. He says in verses 14 to 16 that Enoch in the Old Testament predicted that ungodly people would come and that God would judge them. And then in verses 17 and 18, he said that the apostles also said, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But then Jude says this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, what Jude is saying is that the best defense is a good offense. As I said before, you need to know what you believe. And be walking with Jesus each and every day in his word. Now, praying in the Holy Spirit, I don't think is a reference to praying in tongues, as some have suggested. But it's the normal way that Christians pray. We pray guided by the Spirit and led by the Spirit so we can pray the will of God. So we pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that next, Jude lists off three groups of people. And it's interesting what he says to these three different groups. Look in your Bibles. In verse 22, he says that we should have mercy on those who doubt. You know, often churches can be a very threatening place for people who doubt or are expressing doubts. You know, churches can often be the last place where someone will say that they're like experiencing some type of doubt. You know, just think for a moment what would happen in a small group, in a typical small group, If one of the members said, you know, I'm doubting right now whether God is real, it would make that small group very nervous. And people would start to think they needed to start quoting verses. But Jude actually says, we need to have mercy on those who doubt. We need to sit with people in their doubts, be slow to speak, slow to quote verses, and journey with people through their doubts. I'll never forget hearing Sean McDowell, he's the son of... Josh McDowell. Does everyone here know who Josh McDowell is? Some of you know who Josh McDowell is. He was a really big apologist in the 80s. He wrote the books More Than a Carpenter and Evidence Demands a Verdict. And his son, Sean, came to him one day as a young adult and said, Dad, I have some questions about my faith. Well, rather than Josh coming down on his son, Sean, like a ton of bricks, he said, those questions are good questions. And here's some resources for you to look at. And then he said this. He said, son, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And remember, your mother and I will always love you. What an example. I mean, if the Christian faith is really true, then it should be able to hold up to scrutiny and to the hard questions that people have. Well, then in verse 23, he says this. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The fire, I think, here is the fire of God's judgment. You know, when people are doubting, we need to be merciful with them and help them journey through their doubts. But there does come occasions when people are dangerously close to walking away and we need to snatch them out of the fire. You know, I'll never forget sitting down with this one man one time, young man who had made an appointment with me. And I knew what he was going to speak to me about. He was going to tell me how he was going to drop out of church 
He was in my worship team and he was going to drop out of the worship team because he had started to have this relationship with this girl at university. And as he was sitting in front of me, I just felt the Holy Spirit prompt me. And I just told him, I said, mate, you have two paths ahead of you. Like it says in Matthew chapter 7, there is the broad road that leads to destruction or there is the narrow road that leads to life. And I just encourage you to repent and take the narrow road. You know, sometimes there are moments of decision in people's life, lives and we have to be bold. We have to be bold and challenge them about their allegiance to Jesus. Well, then finally, he says in verse 23, he says, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, this is absolutely amazing, church. Even those who have departed from the Christian faith need to be shown mercy. Because that's what we've been given as Christians. Undeserved mercy. But notice we do it, Jude says, hating the garments stained by the flesh, which implies that we hate the sin and everything connected to it that has led this person astray. And so we tread this fine line of showing mercy to people who've gone astray, but also hating the sin that has led them astray. Now, often we're not very good at that as churches because... When someone walks away from the church, we can take it very personally that they're walking away from us. But they're not walking away from us. They're walking away from Jesus. And Jesus, he has such a heart of mercy. He loves people. He loves them still. So how do you contend for the faith? Well, we have seen today that you must know what you believe. You must develop your discernment muscles And you need to pursue spiritual growth. And part of spiritual growth means as a community, we will help those who doubt and we will snatch those who are heading towards the fire. But you might be thinking today, man, I don't know if I have what it takes to be vigilant and to continue to the end. You know, I remember sitting with someone one time and and them asking that question, them, them saying, I don't know, I don't know whether I have what it takes I mean, we've all heard stories of people who at one time were fervent believers, who may have even preached, who may have even been involved in ministry, and yet they've abandoned their faith. You know, I remember reading about Joshua Harris. You know, Joshua Harris, he was a young man who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And later he became a pastor in a church in the United States. And man, I used to love listening to Josh's sermons. He was a great preacher, really spiritually encouraged me. I remember reading one day on his Instagram, him posting on Instagram this picture and him saying that he is now divorcing his wife and abandoning his faith. I mean, if Josh Harris, a preacher, a Christian author, cannot continue to the end, then what hope have I got? Well, this is how I love how Jude ends this little letter. He ends with a doxology. A doxology is a prayer of praise to God. He writes in verse 24, look in your Bibles. He says, Now to him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You see, you might, you are not able to keep yourself from stumbling in a post-truth world, but guess what? He is. He is able to keep you from stumbling. And we know this because it's his job. It's his job to present you blameless before God's glory. Jesus came. He died on the cross for your sin. He rose again victorious. So don't focus on you. Focus on him. You know, it's interesting that every time in the Bible where you see like one of these statements that's a strong statement about God's ability to uh, keep us to the end, like here, right at the end here, we also find another statement in the Bible urging us to do something. And right here it says, he will keep you. But back in verse 21, it says, you need to keep yourselves in the love of God. He will do it, but you need to trust him to do it. You know, and maybe right now, there are some people in this room and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. Because as I shared before, maybe you've been in a deadly spiral where you have been believing things about God, about his grace. That's led to a moral laxness of behavior and it's led to you not treating God with the reverence that he deserves. Well, as we conclude this message here today, I want to call us back to Christ. We're going to actually now share communion. And uh, as we share communion, there is one question I want you to ask yourself. This is the one question. Have I been keeping myself in the love of God? Has the focus of my Christianity been on Christ and his work and his sufficiency to keep me? Or have I got sidetracked? Have I got derailed? Am I actually, is the focus of my life and my faith some little other thing other than Christ and his sufficiency? You know, people I found who fell, fell away it's because they didn't keep their hearts and minds focused on Christ. As I said before, what the heart wants, the mind justifies. And so they wandered from Christ. And then they had to make up some sort of theology for what they wanted in their heart because their heart was far from Jesus. So I want to call you back to Christ today as we come to the communion, as we come to Christ and we come to his table, as we're invited here today. Lord, we want to keep our hearts and our minds focused on you and your sufficiency to the end. So eat the bread in your own time. And then I'm going to pray before we drink the cup together.
Let's stand together, shall we, as a church? Lord, you are so merciful and gracious. Lord Jesus, you are able to keep us from stumbling and you are able to present us blameless before the Father's glory. And we know this because of what you've done for us on the cross. And as we've eaten the bread, we now want to drink the cup together. And Lord, we want to contend for the gospel. Lord, we want to contend by living wholehearted lives for your glory and honor, Lord Jesus. Let's drink together. Hmm. Do you know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something bold this morning. God is speaking to you this morning, and uh, and you. Um, just sense that the Lord is talking to you about the nature of your heart and you want to say Jesus I want to bring this sin to you and have it cleansed and you've prayed that prayer this morning as we just were sharing and I want to urge you to do something bold this morning I want you to urge you in this last song to come and kneel up the front of the church here that's a bold movement that's a bold thing to do. And the reason I would invite you to do it is because when we do things physically like that, it can seal the decisions that we make in our hearts. Just by kneeling, you're saying, Jesus, I just want to surrender to you. I want you to be Lord. You know, just think of Jude, the little brother of Jesus. He doesn't actually introduce himself as the little brother of Jesus. What a card to play. <laughs> You know, when you're talking in a group of people, who are you? I'm, I'm the little brother of Jesus. That would be an amazing thing to say. But he just calls him, he calls himself a servant of Jesus. A servant of Jesus. Maybe Jesus is calling you to come back, come back. You've wandered. You've wandered from me. Come back. And if he's calling you to do that, then as I said, just come and kneel in this last song and it won't be no embarrassment about that just come and just say Lord Jesus I'll just kneel before you and then once we sing the song you can return to your spot let's, let's sing together